Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Elliot Cohen the Osgood Professor of Strategy at the School of Advanced International Studies of Johns Hopkins University in Washington, and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, how are you? I'm doing great. I just finished a book manuscript, and that makes me feel really good, particularly since I know that it will make all my academic colleagues feel miserable that they haven't finished theirs. And, And since I've been reading it, I can say it's a good book, and we'll get back to that in the future. But why don't you introduce our guest today, who's a friend of ours, both, and former colleague in government, and I hope a friend of the Shield of the Republic podcast. Yes, yeah, so it's uh, it's a terrific pleasure to welcome an old, old friend, Peter Fever. Peter and I are really uh, living demonstrations of the fact that deterrence works. We were in graduate school together. I have stories about him. He's got stories about me. So, you know, we just, we're very careful around each other. <laughs> Actually, uh, Peter is a uh, professor at Duke University. He's one of those academics who are actually quite rare, who's gone in and out of government. He's uh, served several times on the National Security Council staff. He uh, was a naval reservist. He has uh, written widely. I think he's particularly well known for his work on civil military relations, on public opinion in uh, wartime, and how particularly American public opinion towards a war is shaped by whether or not you're succeeding, uh, and nuclear command and control, and on national security strategy documents. So we've got, we have loads of stuff to talk about. Eric, why don't you, well, first, welcome, Peter. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, secondly, uh, Eric, why don't you begin the Inquisition? Uh, Well, it won't be uh, Inquisition. Um, No one was expecting the Spanish Inquisition. Um, (laughs) Peter, recently in War on the Rocks, Uh, there was a document about what good civil-military relations uh, ought to look like between senior leaders that was signed by uh, a number of former chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and a number of former secretaries of defense. And I know you were involved in that process. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about civil-military relations. At some point, I want to come back to the question of civil military relations under Donald Trump and what damage was done there and what needs to be done to rectify it. But tell us a little bit about uh, the document that appeared in War in the Rocks and what caused it to appear. What was the, you know, the proximate cause of, of having to address this issue now? Well, thank you. Yes, I have the great privilege of teaching, uh, co-teaching with General Dempsey, who is the retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and is now a fellow at Duke, he and I co-teach a course on American civil-military relations, uh, two out of the three springs. The other spring, we teach American grand strategy through film, uh, which is a lot of fun, and hopefully one day you can have me back to talk about that. But we were teaching the CivMil course this spring, and in the process, as we were engaging in you know, what was the legacy of the last administration, we came away with a strong view that the public doesn't have a good 
understanding of how to evaluate civ mill. When is it good? When it is bad? What does what does good civilian control look like? What does bad civilian control look like? And we thought this was an opportunity to put out a document that would maybe correct some of the bad uh, grading rubrics that are on offer. If you listen to cable TV tonight, uh, you'll probably hear people saying that good civil mill is the president gets whatever he wants as uh, immediately, even if he's saying, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? You know, he gets it automatically, provided he's my party president. And if he's the other president, then he should be blocked and thwarted in everything he wants to do. That's not good civ mill. And so the idea was, let's, uh, I, there needs to be a statement. But of course, if, if I put out the statement, it would have no, uh, carry no weight at all because no one knows who I am. What it would really be helpful would be for the, the people who did civil mill 24-7. This was their job to be the civil military interface. That would be the secretaries of defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to have them put out what was good civil mill and what was uh, uh, not as they understood it. And that this would then become the grading rubric that would uh, be used for, uh, you know, for the current team. And that was the genesis of the idea. So, Peter, let me ask you a question. Um, You staffed this. uh, Obviously, you helped conceive it. It's quite remarkable to get Almost all, not all, but almost all of the uh, living former secretaries of defense and former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to sign this kind of thing. And I have to think that they signed it not just because they said, oh, it's a good idea, but because they're concerned, if not indeed alarmed. Is that is that a fair assumption? Absolutely. Everyone who responded, we had everyone but two respond. One secretary of defense didn't respond. Uh, one um Uh, chairman uh, didn't respond. Uh, But everyone else who responded said, this is very important. This is needful. There is something awry in Civ Mill. Not so much that there was a problem with how our military was acting. There wasn't necessarily a problem with even how the current team was conducting Civ Mill. There's a problem in the broader uh, public conversation about Civ Mill. And to a person, they agreed this problem was serious and needed to be addressed. Where the debate was, was on exactly how to say it, how to say something without violating the Hippocratic Oath, without making the problem worse. What do you think are the key arguments? Not, they're not arguments, they're assertions, really. What are the key assertions that you would want people to take away from that document? And like I said, you can find this on uh, War on the Rocks, um, and it really is worth worth a read, although it is it is carefully couched, as yes. these things have to be. Right. Uh, but but it had a number of assertions which I thought were critical. Maybe you could just say a little bit about that. Well, one of them, which may feel like civics one hundred and one, but it it deserves to be emphasized, is that civilian control does not rest only in the president as commander in chief and the secretary of defense. Yes. That is the chain of command. But when it comes to the broader making of of strategy and policy, the other two branches of government have a crucial role to play uh, in civilian control. Congress, of course, is essential uh, in the raise, maintain, and equip part of national security. 
And the courts also play a crucial role because they get to declare what is legal or illegal. And one of our hallowed uh, principles of civilian control in the United States is that the military will carry out, must carry out legal orders, but must not carry out illegal orders. And therefore, the courts play a role uh, in determining uh, whether an order is legal or not. Uh, at least, you know, in the extremis, that that is a possibility. And so they they play a role in civilian control as well. That's one of the big principles. The second one is, uh, and the, it's not worded quite this way, uh, but I, this is how I would summarize it, that good process is conducive to good civil military relations, which is good conducive to civilian control. That when you have the... Uh, the president sort of thinking out loud, wouldn't it be great if something happened? And then people around the president turning that into an exord, that's not good process because that means- An execution order, just for- Execution order, right. Uh, It's not good civilian control for that thinking out loud to be translated immediately into action. What the president needs is his or her team to explain, well, sir, let me tell you what the second and third order effects are of that. And if you do this, you are simultaneously having the system do that. Are you sure that's what you want? Because many times what the president thinks the president wants is not, in fact, what the president actually wants once the full risks of a course of action is understood. And so it's not breaking, uh, it's not undermining civilian control to alert the president to these issues. In fact, it, it would be undermining civilian control not to alert the president. And of course, there was a lot of reporting on the, the last, well, the last four years of the entirety of the Trump administration, but especially the last six months when the wheels were coming off the bus in the Trump interagency. And in those moments, some you know, on cable TV, you can get criticisms of what, say, General Milley or Secretary Esper did that I think missed the mark, misunderstand that actually they were supporting civilian control when they were making sure President Trump knew what might happen if this particular idea was carried out. Let me just uh, ask the two of you, because both of you studied with Samuel Huntington, whose study in the late 1950s, a soldier in the state, created what what I think, Elliot, what you call the the normal theory of civilian control of the of the military, and it, it basically suggests that the military is responsible for those things that fall into the province, specifically of military professionalism and manning, training, and equipping the armed services of the United States, and the civilians are in charge of policy. They're the ones who make the political decisions that are then executed by the armed services and in accordance with what the kinds of precepts, Peter, that you were just sort of articulating. My own experience as both a DAS in the Bush 41 administration and then- DAS is a deputy assistant secretary. Deputy assistant secretary of defense. And then as an undersecretary of defense, the number three policy position in the Pentagon, is that, in fact, it's not as neat as that. I mean, particularly at the highest levels, because it's much more the line between 
what is professional military advice to the president and what is policy advice becomes very, very permeable. Um, and I, so I, so in my own experience, I kind of conceived it this way. You're all familiar with uh, Edwin Corwin's famous statement that the Constitution is an invitation to struggle over the control of foreign policy. I thought that the National Security Act of 1947 was an invitation to struggle over the control of of defense policy between civilians and the uniformed military. And in fact, if you look at the official histories of the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the through line that connects all those volumes is the struggle to develop adequate staff for the civilians to be able to kind of control this rather large military uh, bureaucracy. So am I wrong? Was was Huntington a little too simplistic or how do you guys see it? So uh, I think Peter and I would agree that um, Sam Huntington was a genius. He was the greatest political scientist of his generation. Also important to remember, he the, the soldier in the state came out in 1957. He was about 30 years old, uh, which is pretty staggering uh, when you think about it. And it is to some extent a product of an intellectual climate, uh, which was shaped by a couple of things. First, the ex- recent experience of World War II and sort of the received wisdom about uh, how the war was conducted and, and, you know, the roles of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and which have actually been undermined, I think, by a lot of the recent historical literature, on, including on, on Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and also a very particular conception of what a, pro- what a profession is. So Huntington was working with ideas that really went back to the 20s and 30s, if, if not before. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, Peter and I have, have tackled the issue in different ways. Uh, and I'll stop in a moment and let uh, he'll, he'll speak for himself. But Sam really believed that there could be bright lines between the political and the military function. And some of his students, like Dick Betts, actually, I think, have continued to make those kinds of arguments. And like you, I don't buy it. I think the in practice... It's a lot murkier than that. And I'll say just one other thing, and then I'll stop and wait uh, for Peter to tell me I'm wrong. You know, I think you're right. It's an invitation to struggle. And that means civil-military relations is always problematic, even in the absence of a, you know, a threat of a coup or something like that. We don't really worry about that in the United States. But there are loads and loads of issues, whether you're talking about the relationship between the military and society, or the military and other institutions like the courts, or the relationship between the generals and admirals on the one hand and the secretary and the president on the other, which are just going to be constant tension. And one, you know, one issue you always have to ask yourself is what is kind of a normal level of tension and what is something that's worrisome? And and I will end this with a question that I hope Peter will address as he, you know, gives his take on what I just said is, you know, I, on the one hand, I think the those generals and secretaries of defense are obviously had to have been reacting to the Trump years. But I think a number of us have been concerned about things really for a lot longer than that. I mean, Peter, you and I have been discussing these issues you know, confidentially for decades. And so there's been a feeling, I think, for some time that there are things that are problematic going on. And I wonder if you, know, you felt that the secretaries and the former chairman uh, were reacting simply to Trump or to something that transcends Trump. But why don't you start with Huntington? Peter, before you go, let me just uh, just uh, throw some fuel on fire that Elliot just ignited. So 
four years ago, when I co-chaired the National Defense Strategy Commission, we raised this question of uh, civil-military relations in our report. And in particular, we said we were concerned, and this was a panel that included, as my co-chair, for instance, the former CNO, Gary Ruffhead, whom you know well, as well as former Vice Chief of Staff for the uh, Army, Jack Keane. And it was the unanimous view of both the civilians and the two former four stars on our panel that this was a that was a problem, and in particular that there had been an imba- a growing imbalance in the advice being offered both to the Secretary of Defense and to the President, in part driven by the sort of unanticipated consequence of the Goldwater-Nichols Act in the mid-1980s, which created these uh, really powerful combatant command staffs uh, that are quasi-permanent. They're not really permanent, but they have an ongoing life, while civilian appointees, for instance, in the Department of Defense routinely are you know, down about a quarter. That's to say there is about 25% vacancy rate constantly in these Senate-confirmed positions. There used to be 44. I think there may be more now. You know, these presidential, presidential appointees confirmed by the Senate who are meant to provide some of this civilian control. So if you could, you know, comment on that as you respond to Elliot, I'd be grateful. Right. So let me just step back and begin with Huntington. His great, one of his great geniuses was in identifying a narrative story of Civ Mill that the military liked a lot. So one reason why he remains so relevant is that if you take an average military officer, scratch him, and ask them to talk about how you think it ought to go, what comes out is pretty close to what Sam describes. So he, the military think that's the way it should go, but you're right, Eric and Elliot, that that's not in fact how it goes. And very few civilians, very few presidents enter into uh, their role thinking that that's the way it should go. And I liken it a little bit to a marriage where each of the partners comes in thinking they know how it's going to go and what their role is and what the other side's role is going to be. And then they get married and they discover, whoa, uh, the other, my partner doesn't have the same set of expectations and they keep underperforming on mine and I keep underperforming on theirs. And some of the struggle and tension that Elliot mentioned is, is, um, you know, derives, I think, from that competing expectations. That's the first point I make. Second point is there's no question that Civ Mill was a, a matter of great tension in the Obama administration, but it was also a, a matter of great tension in the Bush administration, particularly under uh, in the first you know four years under Secretary Rumsfeld. But but in the second uh, four years, there were other concerns. So uh, you what you find if you look at it in a historical perspective is a little bit of a pendulum swing. Uh, there was uh, complaints during the Obama years of the NSC is too large. There's too much micromanagement. We are st- spending all day in endless DCs and PCs, uh, and we're never getting any decision. Boy, I wish we had a more f- loose and freewheeling, you know, interagency system. Well, they got that under President Trump. Yeah, the DCs and PCs are deputies and principals committee meetings. Right. This is when, as ideas get, and policies get worked at lower levels, ready for the president to decide. Uh, And what you had in the Trump administration is a very different set of problems. You had an interagency process that was not connected to the president. 
So it was bubbling along fine uh, as long as the questions they were deciding didn't have to be decided by the president and or the president didn't care about it. But if the president intersected with the process, then whatever the interagency was doing just didn't matter much in the Trump years. And so part of the the answer to your question is, yes, there would not been a muscle memory of sort of really good civil military relations. Uh, you know, you go back four, five, six years where you didn't have good relations inside the DOD with a very strong and empowered civilian staff advising the secretary and balancing a very strong joint staff that was advising the chairman and together the DOD was going across the hill into a functioning interagency where it was going well. There wasn't muscle memory of that, whether from the Trump years or from uh, the late Obama years. And so that's part of the story. And then just one other part of the story, which uh, to complicate it further, is we have aggressively politicized the military. By say we, I mean civilians as much as the military, particularly civilian political actors. Um, and to a certain extent, that was the final catalyst, I think, that convinced the folk, the, the, the signers of that letter that to, to do this project, which was the the almost um, virulent uh, attacks on the military for from a partisan uh, perspective for pure partisan gain, uh, and that 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 felt new. It's not unprecedented in American history, of course, but it's that is different from what we've had over the last several decades. We probably should wrap up uh, this part of the discussion, but I, I really was going to I wanted to ask you to comment on two particular episodes, uh, which are, of course, quite famous. One is General Milley's walk in Lafayette Park during a demonstration where, you know, the uh, the president was out there and they brought in the National Guard and he was in uniform and he later apologized for it. So if you could just talk us through those issues. But then, of course, the big one is January 6th. Right. And also, the, you know, the, the remainder of the that fraught period where Trump was not willing to accept the outcome of the election. And, you know, General Milley is put in this very, very difficult situation of what, you know, what do you do if he, you know, if he gives the kind of orders that he could conceivably have given, some of which might have, were, would, would have been illegal. That's easy. You just don't do it. But some of which might have been legal. Right. And, and just how, how do you think about all that? Okay. So th- th- this is, these are two very important questions that, Let's take the Lafayette, what's called the Lafayette Square uh, incident. You really have to begin at the day before because, or several days before, there had been an uh, an ongoing debate between President Trump and his national, senior national security team about how to respond to the protests. And President Trump wanted to respond forcefully and wanted to invoke the Insurrection Act so as to mobilize um, uh, combat units to, uh, to move in. And to a person, his team, so the attorney general, the secretary of defense, the chairman, uh, so far as we know, the national security advisor, they all advised against it and told him that this was a bad idea. Not that it was illegal, because it probably would not have been illegal. The president, the Insurrection Act is loosely written enough 
that the president probably could have ordered that, but it would have been a bad, uh, a bad decision from a policy point of view. It would have, and all of his advisors agreed uh, that it would have been bad. So they basically talked the president out of doing this, uh, and I think in the process helped the president enormously because if the if that if the president had gotten what he initially asked for, it probably would have been a lot, lot worse. In response to that, the White House was frustrated. And of course, it leaked immediately that that the, the this debate had gone on and that made the president look weak. And there were reports that the president was hiding in the bunker. Uh, and so that made him look weak. And so in response, the president and the White House devised a basically a photo op that would make the president look strong. Presidents are allowed to do photo ops that make them look strong. That's part of a political process. There's nothing improper for the White House to stage photo ops for the president. That's part of their job. Uh, what made it unfortunate was that they asked General Milley to come along. General Milley happened to be wearing uh, combat fatigues. And Secretary uh, Esper. Yes. Uh, and... They asked them to come along before they understood, before they knew for sure what they were being asked to do. Uh, they would be, were called to a meeting. If the president calls you to a meeting, you got to go. You can't say, well, I'm busy, sir. No, they went to the meeting in the White House. And then it turned out the meeting in the White House was really going to be a walk across Lafayette Square. As soon as uh, General Milley discovered that that's what this was, he bugged out because the military should not be involved in partisan photo ops. That's not their job. That's an inappropriate use of the military. Presidents can be, military not. The problem is General Milley bugged out a couple minutes after a photographer got the shot of him walking over. So even though he was not in the in front of the church with the holding of the Bible, he was in the, the scene of walking over. And it looked like, therefore, he was embracing um, what the president was saying about that moment. And what the president was saying was a very partisan take on the situation in the square. And also that the General Milley was endorsing uh, the heavy-handed tactics that were used to clear a, a safe space for the president to walk across the square. So a firestorm of criticism leveled against General Milley from the people that probably he cared about the most, meaning former senior military mentors and former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Admiral Mullen went public with the criticism uh, and several others did as well. And indeed, some of them were calling on him to resign, resign for having been allowed to be seen in a uh, photo op. General Milley consulted widely with a bunch of people. I don't know who all he talked to. One of the people he talked to was me, and I urged him not to resign. I thought that would that was a mistake that would further politicize the matter and would suggest that he had been in a he maybe had been wrong in advising the president against the you know invoking the insurrection act when in fact that was part of his job. All of that was proper. And while it was unfortunate that he had been in the photo op, it was not a, in my judgment, a career ending mistake. And what General Milley was able to do, I thought was very deft, uh, which is he apologized to the military profession saying, you know, I got caught in a situation. I wasn't quick enough to uh, recover from it. it he, he gave a speech to 
the graduating class at NDU and basically said, man, that was a, that's on me. That was a mistake. If you get caught in these kind of situations, be sure that you don't get involved in partisan politics. And that he did it once. He didn't go on an apology tour, but he did it in the right venue to the profession. And, and that, and then he moved on. That was deft on his part, but it made, it put him crosswise with the president who felt like he had done nothing wrong. In fact, the wrong thing was not to to go all the way across the the park. So this was, you know, this created bad odor between General Milley and President Trump. And the next six months of the administration were very rocky for the relations between General Milley and President Trump. What's remarkable to me is how much of Trump's policies General Milley still carried out, fulfilled, uh, it, he was not inside working as a saboteur, trying to undermine the president at every turn. No, he was basically doing his job. However, there are a couple, you know, high profile incidents that happened in late October and then into January, which is your second question, Elliot. And so let me address those. If you look at what he did, what General Milley did, I think there's very little to fault him for. What he did was advise the president, made sure that the president knew about the second, third order consequences and some of the harebrained schemes that the president's advisors wanted him to do. The president decided after further reflection, no, I don't want to do. He also made sure that the Chinese didn't get a garble about what our policy was. That is part of General Milley's job to develop relations with Chad's or with uh, other heads of military around the world so that in a crisis, he can reach out to people, know them, take the phone call and explain. And so both of the times he did that, there was nothing wrong with it. Um, so what he did, not a problem. What he said at the time about other, uh, to other people about what he did, probably not a problem. Uh, uh, but what the fact that we know about it, that's where there might be a problem. So uh, a lot of this entered into the public record because uh, reporters got access to it. And so that has created a challenge for General Milley because a lot of Trump supporters in Congress believe, you know, take one or other of these items, maybe misunderstand it, misinterpret it. Now they have a partisan cudgel and they've been beating General Milley over the head and shoulders with it. So the issue there is, well, should so much of this been into the public record so soon? That's that's a different matter. But if you look at what he actually did, I don't find much to fault him on. So um, I think we probably, uh, we could go on on this one for a, a long time, but the time has been slipping by. I, I, I've been droning on is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Before we uh, tie it off, Elliot, I want to just foot stomp something Peter said because I really abhor it. It, it. And it's Peter's point that it's civilians who in many ways have politicized the military. And I, I lived through this going through the the Bush 41 to Clinton transition, the Clinton to Bush 43 transition, and, and even uh, the tail end of my career as we went through the Bush 43 Obama transition. And, and this is the notion that uh, every four years, you know, at the quadrennial political conventions, each party 
troops out its group of retired military officers to endorse a presidential candidate, um, which creates the perception that although these guys are retired and therefore, you know, they're within their rights, presumably to express their political opinions at this point in their life, although they're still subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, it, it creates the notion that there are you know, Clinton generals and Bush generals or Bush generals and Obama generals. And I, I think it's really corrosive and a terrible thing. And both parties do it. Um, you know, President Trump famously was talking about my generals. You know, why can't they be like the German generals who, as, as uh, General Kelly pointed out to him, tried to kill Hitler three times. But President Biden did it, too. When President Biden gave his speech at Philadelphia, he had those two Marine security guards silhouetted you know, in red, white, and blue lights behind him. I mean, it was equal, you know, it wasn't equally bad, but it was bad. And it's just wrong for both parties to do it. I just don't want us to leave this section without my making that point. No, I I, I think that's, look, that's absolutely right. You know, uh, P- Peter and I alternately write uh, hysterical op-eds on this subject uh, every uh, every four years. They, they do they do some good. I mean, I think there's a norm among a lot of retired general officers who don't do this, but there are still plenty who will succumb and say, well, either I'm different or the situation is different. And, it, you know, it's an issue of norms, not laws. And a large part of civil military relations is about norms. You know, legally, a four star, retired four-star can become a pole dancer in Las Vegas, too. But, you know, it, it's not the kind of thing that would uh, bring credit onto the uh, onto the service. I, I want to... Um, well- um, <laughs> I, when, I once I once wrote that and uh, I had a couple of angry generals and then a whole bunch of colonels nominate generals to be pole dancers. So. Oh, I, I thought it would be the pole dancers complaining that you were casting. <laughs> yeah, them. I, there was that. Um, um, I want to move on to the next topic, but I want to introduce it with a, a, a kind of recusal on my part. We want to get Peter, who's actually drafted a national security strategy. He was the lead drafter, I think it's fair to say, of the 2006 National Security Strategy in the second term of of Bush 43. The uh, Biden administration has just released its National Security Strategy a little bit late, but better late than never, I guess. Now, this is a genre of document that I know Elliot holds in minimum low regard. And so uh, I want want to sort of really kind of get you guys, you know, tearing at each other over this. But I want to also inform our our listeners that I am going to, uh, for a rare occasion, maintain a a kind of studied silence on the subject since uh, I've been nominated to be on the National Defense uh, Strategy Commission that was created by the last National Defense Authorization Act. And we're going to have to comment publicly on these documents. I'm going to, at least for the moment, withhold uh, judgment about the Biden national security strategy on Shield of the Republic, but I, I invite the two of you to have at it. Okay, so, so let me um, let me just begin by saying I it it is indeed the case that I regard these documents with uh, scorn and contumely, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I still like Peter. So uh, Peter, actually, maybe to get us started, could you explain just first, you know what? Like physically, what is this document? How often is it issued? What is its relationship to other official documents? So just give us the kind of bureaucratics and then let's get into the substance. So this was a a legislative requirement from the Goldwater-Nichols reforms of the mid-1980s 
<clears throat> at a time when, if, when it was argued that the Soviet Union plays chess and we play checkers. They can think strategically and, and we can't. We need to be more strategic. We need to think about the second and third order effects of, of what we want to do. We have to think about how different lines of action fit together uh, and, and how priority, if you prioritize one thing, what does that mean you'll do for the lower priorities? So this was, this was all in the ether in the late 80s. <clears throat> he said, let's require the administration to produce a document every year that outlines the president's vision in this area. Well, every year turned out to be ridiculously too often, and no administration has produced one every year. Uh, I, it turns out most administrations have produced about one to two, one per term uh, that are useful. And uh, they, I think, you know, Elliot, you and I disagree on this. I actually think they are a good window into how the president thinks, usually. Uh, I say usually because the Trump national security strategy was not a window into how President Trump thought, but it was a useful window into how his administration below him thought. Uh, you know, H.R. McMaster, General uh, Secretary Mattis, and so forth. Uh, it, it captured well, I think, their vision of the world. And of course, the President Bush's two national security strategies captured his view well. I think Obama's captured his view well. So at that level, they're useful. Secondarily, they, are, they form the top line that then is guidance for the ones that are below it. Below the national security strategy is the national defense strategy put out by uh, Secretary of Defense, then below that is the national military strategy put out by the chairman, and then below that is the various uh, service-specific or region-specific strategies put out either by services or by teams focusing, say, on the Indo-Pacific or something. Well, that's how it works in theory. In practice, though, and I know uh, this is one of your complaints about the NSS, it takes so wretched long to get the president's document out that the uh that often it comes out after the others have come out and that happened this time they finished their the the biden team finished their nds and then the uh nss came out later ironically the administration that had it best on textbook was the trump administration they really did the integration of nss to nds to mns very well uh in part because Apparently, the president didn't need to be involved, and that sped up the integration and uh, and made it easier to integrate. So I do give the Trump administration credit for that. Now, oh, I was just going to make a comment on this the substance of the Biden one, but did you want to? Yeah, a, let, let me first take a swing at the uh, uh, at the genre, and then let's talk about Biden. And so, and you can respond to the swing at the genre. So I would offer two uh, large critiques. One is. They are plat platitudinous. They're banal. And that's in part because they're committee products. They're part because they're un unclassified. And so, you know, okay, the, the, the penny that drops is China is a really big problem. Well, duh. You know, it doesn't really add a whole lot. Whereas you know, some of the other kinds of documents you've had in the past, such as Nixon and Kissinger's foreign policy reports, because Kissinger actually was writing those things, you know, were, I think, much more useful. These tend to be 
you know, I, I you know, e- even in the better drafted ones, they are the results of a committee. But secondly, and I think we do see this in the Biden one, it's all about ends or priorities, but there's nothing about means. There's nothing about resources. And so, you know, what is a strategy? It, well, I guess I'll, I'll be more assertive about it. It seems to me it's not a strategy if you're talking about you know, circumstances, and here's what we here's what uh, we see as a problem, and here's what we'd like to do about it. Well, but you don't actually say what you're going to do about it, and you're not actually talking about putting resources against any particular problem. It's just we will address that. Well, that again, I don't think that is particularly useful. That's just the beginning of it, but we don't have time for the the full ninety minute lecture. Right, and. And the answer, you're right, that that no national security strategy is a fully satisfying strategy that would pass muster at, say, uh, the professional military education institutions where they teach you how to do strategy with ends, ways, and means, all specified, and risk with a risk uh, appendix, et cetera, et cetera. That's true, but they can still be very useful. And even the critique that you offered about President Biden's one is possible as a uh, measuring stick to hold up against the rest of what they do, particularly the budget, because they've outlined, I would say, uh, the way Hal Brands puts it, I think is really good. They've outlined a Cold War level of great power competition, but they're trying to resource it at a uh, post-Cold War level of resources. Well, that's a strategy ends means gap. It showed up acutely in the Obama years when you could uh, point to what they were trying to do or what they said they were trying to do and contrast that with how they resourced it. And the fact that you had the public statements and documents there made it possible to point out this gap. So I think that's that's useful as a teaching exercise. All right. The, well, we're we're going to have to. In terms of the uh, uh, committee versus non-committee, that's actually a, a party effect. So the Republicans tend to do it with a very small group and tend to be more top down. That was the way Trump's was. That's the way President Bush's, both of his were done that way. Um, and the Democrats tend to do it more bottom up. I actually worked on President Clinton's first NSS when I was in the Clinton NSC, and that was a very bottom up process. So was President Obama's, uh, and same with Biden's initially, uh, uh, or not initially. Initially it was top down. Then they had an inner uh, bottom up process, and then they brought it back top down. The the that's just a a party difference. Uh, take. I'm not sure it means anything more than just different teams are socialized into doing the process differently. Now, here's my view on the President Biden's. I think it's a good faith effort to lay out President Biden's preferred approach for dealing with what they see as great power competition and uh, transnational challenges, which both coexist both are of vital national interest, according to President Biden, and I, I tend to agree with him. You can't do one and ignore the other. So that is what he would like to be able to do both at the same time. 
What the document is less clear on is how are you going to manage the tensions that are inherent in that? They identify the tension. They point out that it's hard to address climate change without cooperating with China, but it's hard to cooperate with China when you view them as a significant geopolitical, the most significant geopolitical challenge. And President and China shows no interest in cooperating. So I guess then the next question is, OK, so now what are you going to do about it? And I think the document's a little less satisfying on answering that follow on question. So so I'll, I'll just uh, I mean, again, you and I could go on forever in this. First, we were able to do all these kinds of things in the era before NSSs, before national security strategies. And in fact, you can argue we had a much more coherent approach to the world before we had these ridiculous documents. Um, and I don't know, I, I guess it, the thing is, it seems to me that what happened with the Biden administration was the, the thing that struck me most about their, their national security strategy is they had it all laid out. It's all going to be China, China, China. We're going to disengage from the Middle East. We're going to disengage from Europe. And then Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. And the truth is they don't actually really adjust to it. It's, you know, you, you can tell this is a document that keeps on being rewritten. To, to try to somehow accommodate itself to the world as it really is. And that's what often happens. Whereas if you give a presidential speech at the right moment, it seems to me you can address those kinds of questions much more effectively. So, but I guess we're, we are running short on time. Uh, I'll, I'll just take it that Peter concedes my points. <laughs> I'm reminded as I watch Elliot Savage Peter on this issue of a real life moment when my then deputy, when I was undersecretary, presented the 2006 then quadrennial defense review uh, to the Defense Policy Board. And former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, was on the board. And he, he turned and rounded on my poor deputy who had to defend this do bureaucratic document with all of the deficiencies that Elliot described and said, if this were a real strategy for defending the United States, you'd be addressing all the problems in our education system and why we're not competitive with China. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, that's actually the, I would say one of the challenges with uh, certainly President Obama's, but to a certain extent, President Biden's is they cast the net so widely. Uh, it's so capacious in what it, it covers uh, that that, you know, that, that, that does, um, being that it can't it can't be convincing on any one of those. Uh, I I would just let, let me just close with one uh, one other thing to flag. This maybe is more for you, Eric, when you put on that your hat of you know the red teaming this strategy. They lean pretty heavily on the, a successful industrial policy as a way to compete with China, and they lean pretty heavily on the revival of the American economy as a way to outgrow, you know, we'll grow, outgrow our problem. Well, those are two important pillars, which if they work, that will help. But how reliable are those pillars? They, they look shaky. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to be very anxious to rely on one of the chief beneficiaries of that industrial policy, you know, Elon Musk. Um, <laughs> well, so there, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot to challenge, but, but, I do think they're clear-eyed about the threat and the challenges. I, I, I don't think in this sense, it's not a head in the sand document that pretends we don't pro face a problem from Russia. We don't face a problem from China. I, in that sense, I give them credit. And 
here's where you have to note there's a bipartisan consensus. We have a problem with both of those countries. And I hope that bipartisan consensus survives the midterm. Yeah. So I, if I could just, uh, you kind of drag me back into this. I, I completely agree on China. And look, I agree with him about climate change and, and about industrial policy and all, all that. I think on Russia, actually, though, uh, and I've actually talked to some of the people on the NSC staff who uh, drafted it, uh, as I'm sure you have, they're sort of expecting that the Russia problem goes away over five to 10 years, whereas I don't think that's a safe assumption. I think the the safer assumption is, however, the Ukraine war settles itself out, you're going to be dealing, you're likely to be dealing with a revanchist Russia, which is kind of gearing itself up for a second round, which is isolated from the West, which feels humiliated and angry, um, and which will probably not be a liberal democracy or anything even close to it. So I think that's actually, it's actually a larger long-term problem. The, the thing is, if you pose the problem that way, say you absolutely have to deal with China, that's the primary challenge, but Russia is an enduring challenge as well. Then you get to our friend Hal Brands's point, then you better begin resourcing it appropriately. Right. Yeah. Right. I want to pick That's up on I want to pick up on point Peter just made about whether the bipartisan support, which I agree this document, uh, there's a lot of carryover from the Trump 2017 uh, NSS and and a certain amount of bipartisan consensus on, on on some of this, not all of it. But you mentioned the midterm, perhaps undermining the bipartisan consensus, at least on on Russia, Ukraine, and just in the last day or two. Uh, putative future Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has actually made some comments about how it's going to be a lot harder. Public opinion so far, actually, uh, as polling has continued, remains uh, pretty robust. I mean, uh, I know Shibley Telhami has a new poll out showing, actually, since June, the gap between Republicans and Democrats in support has actually narrowed as as more Republican support has ticked up a little. Um so uh, there's that. And then there's the question of, you know, how that's translated by political figures. But Peter, you've written extensively about public uh, opinion and support for war. Now, this is a proxy war, not one in which we're directly engaged, but it's a pretty expensive proxy war. I mean, right, we've already appropriated $40 billion in assistance. The administration's asked for another, I think, 11, 12 uh, and it may require more, you know, over time. So it's not not nothing. What what is the work you've done in the past on public opinion and support for war? Tell you about where we are today and what the prospects are for continued support. Well, w- one thing this is not my work, but a, a, another scholar has shown that when there's a really bitter elite debate. So the elites are, you know, political elites are are sharply critical, as say happened in late Vietnam. Then the public uh, has divided cues and public support suffers as a result. Uh, So I do think that you could see public support for helping Ukraine drop if Republicans took over the House and at the same time decided, yeah, we need to now use Ukraine as a cudgel to beat up on President Biden. And and if they made anti-Ukraine uh, talking points and efforts a major plank of the, the 
their Congress, uh, you know, their term or their, sorry, their session, that would reverberate in the public because you'd get folks who aren't following the war closely enough to uh, to say, well, maybe it's not such a good idea. Do you uh, think they will do that, Peter? I I think there will we we will elect we the electorate will elect uh, more people who are inclined to do that than are in the current Congress. So I think the caucus of of uh, Republicans who would like to politicize this issue uh, for whatever reason uh, that that will be larger. I don't think that's going to be the case in the Senate. I think what you'll see is an interchamber conflict between. Uh, sort of the Republicans in the Senate versus Rep- Republicans in the House. And I don't think it'll be the majority position in the House. But if, say, it's a narrow Republican majority, then the Speaker, speak, likely Speaker McCarthy, he will be very dependent on this larger caucus of, uh, say, Ukraine skeptics, we'll call them. And so, yeah, I I, I do worry about the, the longer term uh, level. I prefer public- pro-Putin defeatists, but that's okay. Yeah, that, that, some of them I think <laughs> are fit that bill. There's also a more principled position that says it's all China, and uh, we just have to, you know, anything that distracts us from China is is a mistake. I think that's wrong. I think it's wrong on the merits, but that is a principled position, different from some of the others. So yeah, I do think that there's an opportunity, and of course. It also matters what our European allies do. I I hope they'll be strong even in a cold winter. But let's be honest, Putin believes that his escalation card that's work going to work for him is a cold winter, and I and he's you know he's waiting for that card to play and uh, rev- and redound to his benefit. And and we have to see whether it will. I hope it won't. But uh, but the the European publics will be under a lot of pressure this winter. Can I ask one last question, Peter? You know, you're very unusual in that you studied domestic politics as well as uh, national security, foreign policy. Um, something, you know, as I mean, we're all never Trump types, or at least we signed all the letters. Uh, do you think the Republican Party, and, and yet, but you're very close to people who are particularly on the domestic side in the uh, uh, George W. Bush administration, which uh, we all served. Do you think the Republican Party will kind of de-Trumpify at some point, I'm, or or is this is there really kind of a, a fundamental shift that has occurred here, which it would be foolish for people like us to to think will be reversed? I think that there the problem is worse than I had hoped it would be. So I was of the school that thought that Trump's political clout would would. Uh, declined rapidly after he left office, and it has declined much more slowly than I expected. So I have to admit that. And in the process, we've lost some really great, uh, you know, great patriots, people like uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney and others who, uh, some who lost and some who just decided to retire. Uh, And that's a significant loss inside the Republican Party. So the problem is worse than I thought. But in the long run, I don't believe that you can build a functioning Republican intellectual platform around uh, what Trump stands for. And the folks who have tried to do that uh, strain themselves uh, and produce incoherent 
work that then the president himself, former president himself, sort of robust because what he's all about is his personal grievances and not a coherent platform. And so at the end of the day, uh, I th- I'm expecting the what I like to prefer to call sort of the, the sensible wing of the Republican Party, uh, which would include, you know, most of the people who are running for to ru- compete against President Trump in 2016. But also most many of the people, not all, but many of the people who are hoping he doesn't run so they have a shot at running in 2024. I think there's some good folks there. The problem is that President Trump has a hold on a important, very important part of the primary electorate, the people who vote to select. And that is forcing people to say things that I don't believe they really believe about the 2020 election and and other things. And so uh, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think 2022 will elect a more problematic Republican caucus and problematic from my view. And I think that the problems of that caucus will be manifest and hopefully will will be fixed or will will be um, a warning so that the 2024 produces a better set of actors. That's that's my optimistic hope. Well, very rarely do we end on an optimistic note on Shield of the Republic, Peter. So you're, you're being very, you know, very contrarian here, but that's great. It's it, You've been very generous with your time. Uh, you've got a book coming out in 2023? Yes. Thanks for your service on public confidence in the military and what drives it and what it, why it matters. So maybe I'll come back and shill that book on the, my next visit. Well, we would love to have you. Yeah, absolutely. But that will do for today's episode of Shield of the Republic. If you enjoyed the podcast, please, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, go on, give us a review, give us a a rating, and please send your emails to shieldoftherepublic at gmail.com. We do read them and try to answer questions. We can't answer all the questions that our listeners send in, but we do try to address them along the way with our guests and uh, and gives us ideas for future episodes. So please keep those cards and letters coming in. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for being here.